Hello everyone, I think we're live, so welcome today to uh, another Wiser Wednesday. So, talking about founder fundraising in stagflation. So, really excited for this conversation. I'm James Potton, I believe in a world of entrepreneurial success without burnout. Uh, pretty much got the t-shirt just, just about got through it when I was running a, a few of my previous businesses. So. Fundraising, really relevant topic at the moment, set against the backdrop of, uh, I suppose, look, fear plays into everything, hey, so increasing fear, uh, some redundancies coming through in Silicon Valley. Um, we've also seen this side of the pond, some casualties with, you know, arrival, hopping, they're reducing their workforce by 30%. Global VC funding fell uh, by about 90% in Q1 this year, M more so um, on sort of C round plus, but... Uh, as it's uh, known, sort of financial gravity, what goes up must, must come down. So how can founders start to, um, you know, expect to fundraise in this climate? Uh, let's find out. It's, uh, and I don't mean the heat. Luckily, it's a bit cooler today for uh, anyone based in the UK. Uh, so first up, panellists. Jennifer, so founder of uh, Atta. Uh, you coach female leaders um, to realise their potential and thrive as CEOs. So navigating sort of new challenges uh, when scaling their business, including fundraising. So, uh, a fun fact, you took a trapeze lesson at circus school in Old Street. Um, you would have run away, but you found out you had vertigo. So, um, the female founder community is grateful you didn't. Uh, <laughs> next up, Kirsty, uh, founder of uh, ISQ, a crowdfunding specialist um, in uh, private equity uh, and basically a support founder, founder helping um, their clients found, uh, well, you actually like, help raise nearly 50 million of fundings through direct and extended networks um and fun fact you can say the alphabet faster backwards and you can say it forward so i might get you to prove that later um so brilliant fact um pratik uh, sanjay you're a founder of uh, foundraiser so living out in oslo and uh you're an outbound specialist for founders connecting them with angel investors globally uh so you 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 know concentrate more so I suppose uh, Europe North America and also South South America so ex excited to hear about that and what you're seeing um, you know happening in that in that space mm -hmm. uh, fun fact you didn't speak a word of Spanish until age 21 uh, you did some serious uh, deep learning and your first job was in a Spanish role age 24 so yeah uh, that's about as far as my Spanish goes and <laughs> uh, Liam, uh, founder of Virtus Energy, uh, experienced fundraiser. Over the last 10 years, you've raised nearly 30 million for businesses and projects you've worked, worked through. Um, in a previous life, you ran Thrive Funding, like FCA regulated fundraising advisory platform. So yeah, you've been helping um, people raise seed and Series A's funding. Um, and you know, running joke for Liam uh, is he's often mistaken as someone from Essex. He's not. So, <laughs> okay, so before we go any further, um, definition of stagflation, uh, definition of stagflation. So it's obviously, you know, kind of a bit of a buzzier word, although it actually originated back in the 1960s. Um, it's basically inflation with slowed growth and high unemployment, the trifecta. So we don't have the, the latter yet, but the former are, um, you know, likely in the coming quarters. So um, yeah, look, just to set the scene, um, a, a bun fight is a fun fun night. So everyone jump in with questions we want to, you can ask each other, just, you know, just like feel like you're able to, to, to speak when you want to. Uh, we're live, so no swearing. Uh, bad jokes are always welcome. Um, here's an example. I saw a baguette at the zoo. It was bred in captivity. 
Oh dear, I didn't even finish it right. It's so bad. Anyway, so some quick intros. Um, starting with Jennifer, do you mind giving us a quick, uh, in a minute, um, your sort of journey to where you are today? Uh, over to you. Oh, unmute. Oh my gosh, put on the spot. I was about to say, you've already done a great intro. Um, <laughs> oh, in a minute. Uh, uh, gosh, James, that's hard. Oh, sorry. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't prep you. <laughs> that's all good. Um, so I have had a career in change management work, um, ended up in the innovation and entrepreneurship space um, and in the economic development space, uh, always had very facilitative roles. So um, bringing about change, um, uh, doing project management work, moving into coaching work was was very natural, um, I guess, in my entrepreneurial, uh, in my economic growth role, I ended up um, actually starting a couple of businesses and, and built Tech Week in New Zealand. Um, did a lot of mentoring and um, and thought, how can I do this for, for a job? And that's how I ended up moving into business coaching. Awesome. All right, there we go. Hand that Perfect, over. there you go. And we're off. Uh, right, on my, I'll go around. So Liam, you're up next. Uh, quick intro from your side. Um, yeah, this is always nice. Um, yeah, so I lead um, a company called Vertus Energy at the moment. Um, that is a EV charging business. Prior to that, I've um, sat both sides of the fence, both fundraising for my own businesses and uh, helping others. So as you mentioned, had a uh, crowdfunding business up until probably about three years ago. Um, fully actually regulated, all those bits and bobs and nice bits that come with it. Um, realistically, just driven by trying to help good entrepreneurs and like-minded people that are trying to get their businesses off the ground really and fell into renewables and sustainability sector in the last kind of like six or seven years um so yeah it's kind of a bit of a summary of me really perfect great stuff uh, Pratik you're up next okay so my name is Pratik and my biggest skill set is knowing how to say hello to a complete stranger and this skill set has helped me live in New York, Madrid, Barcelona, and now Oslo without prior connections in those places or, or having any work or family connections. Uh, and now I sell the skill set, uh, basically showing founders how they can talk to an angel investor that they do not know in an authentic manner that does not look like it's all about me getting something for myself, but more about you're an interesting person, we should build a relationship. And that is the crux of me offering a process that does not involve saying, wow, you're rich, can we be friends? That's what I help find the word doing. Awesome, great stuff, thanks Pratik. Um, and Kirsty. Hi everyone, I'm Kirsty, CEO of ISQ. Um, I guess I started, uh, I ended up here because I first began helping companies to, or helping, people with ideas to validate their ideas um, and, and validate those ideas via the crowd. And for that business model, I raised investment via equity crowdfunding using an FCA regulated platform. And this was about seven or eight years ago. And I realized that it was good fun and that I was quite good at crowdfunding. And some of the clients that I was helping at the time asked if I could help them to do the same to crowdfund. So I began doing it as a consultant on a one-to-one -one basis and, and became quite busy. Um, and then since then, we've kind of just grown from there over the last seven or eight years have helped hundreds of companies to raise millions and millions of pounds on regulated platforms like Cedars and Crowdcube. 
Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks, Kirsty. Um, so, yeah, really, um, you know, a, a wide range of skills and experience here today. Um, so a bit of a devil's advocate question um, to you, Liam. So why fundraise? Uh, the, uh, yeah, um, realistically, it comes down to one thing and one thing only uh, is expansion and growth. If you're if you're not able to expand or grow your business, you're not going to raise money anyway. No one's going to back you. So realistically, that's the end goal. And it then comes back to probably speed. So the reason you want to raise will be a, a, a trifecta of certain things, speed being one of them. So you want to be quicker getting there or it might be your business model. So your business model might require um, a hell of a lot of upfront spend before you can start to reap any benefits, as we've seen with adoption last kind of like five years of this, like software as a service model, a lot of obviously upfront costs and development before you can really start to reap those benefits. Or it might be technical requirements. So you need to have a large spend on tech development of a team or certain sectors that might be real estate. You need to raise money because you need to buy an asset and therefore that's the way of doing it. But in that, the, the one thing I would say with it is the fundraising isn't the end goal. It's just a mode of transport to get you to what the end goal is quicker. So it's it's might be validation for your idea that you can raise money, but it's really you're doing it because you want to get to the end objective quicker. That's why you fundraise. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks, Liam. Um, yeah, I'd like to open it uh, up to others. Is, is anyone else interested in jumping in here? Yeah, I would say that the reason you want to fundraise is bootstrapping is no longer an option. And I have seen this for people who were dedicated bootstrappers. They hit 10,000, 15,000 or 50,000 revenue per month. And then what they see is the customer orders are coming in at a faster rate than their ability to fulfill them. And suddenly they are saying, I'm sorry, we're at full capacity. We have to say no to your order. And that just makes you look very bad. This problem is familiar also to agency owners who have to find, or certainly finding that when it's become so successful, they need to make a plan to hire people before like more orders come in. And even though bootstrapping is actually a powerful fashion, like a passionate way to build a business, it, your real goal is to keep your customers happy. And you might not be able to keep customer success, customer support, and customer onboarding uh, uh, you know, continuing at, at the present rate if you don't have additional funding. Thanks, Pratik. Um... I, think, I think on the flip side of the question, um, I speak to so many people who are wanting to fundraise and, and I have to decide whether they're in, they're in with a, a chance from what they tell me. And the, one of the big reasons that I would say no to is that you're running out of money and that things, you feel that by raising money, you can kind of turn your business around and things will improve. And that's not the time to, to fundraise. There's, especially right now, there's few investors that will put money into things for that reason. Um, and what you need to be doing at that time is working with experts and, you know, your team and, and collecting feedback and figuring out how you can reposition the business and, and save the business to get yourself into a stronger position so that you can come back and fundraise at a time where the business is on a kind of good trajectory rather than going like this. 
Yeah. Right. Um, building building on those points, unfortunately, I often hear that um, a company's strategy is to continue fundraising. They're focused more on the, sorry, their next goal is fundraising rather than thinking about actually what's needed for the business. Fundraising should fund your business plan. Fundraising is not your business plan. Your business is not to fundraise. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, there can be a subtle difference there because actually businesses, some businesses are built in a way that they have to fundraise in order to, um, to grow. But that is not the point of the business. And sometimes I think that can, it can get confused. Um, Mm. yeah that was just building on, on what you were saying Liam and Pratik to your to your point I mean that scenario that you offered up um there and and I guess Kirsty your experience too that it's not just the tra traditional VC model that's out there for fundraising um we are seeing a um a, a surge in uh revenue based um funding options mm. now too uh, and that seems to be a really good fit for this this current market. Um, so about revenue-based financing, uh, I, I know a UK founder who was offering gourmet meals delivered to offices in a particular hour. That was his business. And, you know, he hit about £200,000 a month, which is actually very impressive numbers. But the moment the revenue-based financing pipeline suddenly got cut down, because of the current economic conditions, because uh, what happens with revenue-based financing is since they have a fixed uh, amount that needs to be repaid, regardless of time, you know, so uh, this is a model which is favor, which, which is giving a higher cost of capital to people who repay faster, the good guys, and then effectively lower cost of capital to people who, who repay slower, the ones who are not doing as well. So the moment that economic conditions change and they realize that they need to have a higher percent per annum, that's when suddenly a lot of business owners find that the RBF pipeline has suddenly stopped. And when he lost that pipeline, his revenues crashed and he was burning money on staff every month. So it is a very powerful option, but it cannot be the only option you depend upon. Okay, great. Yeah, look, I mean, it dovetails quite nicely into, I was going to talk about like some of the options available to founders. So um, yeah, maybe Kirsty to yourself, because you've seen quite a, a few, what, what, you know, what's the landscape look like for earlier stage sort of seed, pre-seed, series A, what, what options are, are open, what other options are open? Um, well, I, I'm always an advocate of, of equity crowdfunding or raising from a number of individuals to do it on a regulated platform isn't always the right format um, typically on a regulated platform investors are looking at businesses with a bit for businesses with a bit more traction but there are great companies and services like seed legals um, if you've heard of seed legals but they will allow you to raise investment from a network of individuals um, without needing to make that public on a platform. And that is, I guess, still a form of crowdfunding. Um, I guess the benefit of trying to raise investment from a number of people, rather than just trying to find that one angel investor that might take a risk, um, is that you're allowing that risk to be spread and for people to take less of a risk on, on your business. So for an early stage company, that can be really useful. And if you've got a decent LinkedIn network or a good, 
a good pool of friends and family around you those sorts of services can be really helpful to bring together lots of individuals to raise a sum of money um you've got kind of debt-based crowdfunding as well which is so things like funding circle but again you need to be generating some sort of revenue usually to qualify for those services so for early stage like a really early stage i think friends and fat building to the point you put to the kind of the latest possible point to get yourself as far as you can and that friends and family rounds often i think the the first place that you might look great yeah and i sort of heard it described as you know normal fundraising is more like fishing with a rod and crowdfunding's more like trawling not, not great kind of imagery but it gives you way, way more options in terms of who you can raise capital through so um yeah that's really interesting about um uh, seed legals as well uh, anyone else um you know want to jump in or any thoughts on on this yeah i mean i think uh, i think in terms of a couple of bits that Kersey's, um touched on there is it's really important to understand your business model where you are to understand what the right fundraising route is for you and what's the right the so for instance if you look at like uh touch on like crowdfunding crowdfunding is great on an equity-based platform because what it does it gives you loads of exposure as a business and if you're the consumer-based business is fantastic but it might be very expensive or time consuming in comparison to other funding routes if you have been trading maybe five years got a good a pretty decent balance sheet and you want to kind of kick on from there someone like a funding circle might suit your business better and um, it's really important to get the right advice from people that have been in the funding space to understand what's right for your business because not all routes are equal for every business yeah um are, you, are there any thoughts on the point that you take money you become a growth company whether you like it or not Oh yeah, that's definitely true because the moment you become a growth company, you have growth company challenges. Uh, one important point is if you're going to be a growth company, you need to have a plan for the worst things happening. Otherwise you might be in, in breach of your VC term sheet or you're gonna just basically letting a lot of people down. So for example, the moment you've taken other people's money, please have a plan for a senior engineer, for example, quitting your team, because that has happened to people I work with. And now they are having so many calls from the investors saying, what is happening to our money? Like, uh, what's, how are you going to find a new engineer? How are you going to make sure that he can understand the other person's process? So that's when we realize if, if the moment you take other people's money, you need to have a plan A, B, C, and D. So get a good key person insurance, get a good cybersecurity insurance, get every kind of risk management measure that is going to make sure that your investors are not going to call you at night and say, okay, you have a plan now? <laughs> Great stuff, thanks, Pratik. Uh, any, anyone else? So happy to move, uh, move into, I suppose, more looking at <clears throat> approaching funders. Um, I, this one's back to Pratik actually, because um, yeah, like in, in initial kind of building your campaign, like really interesting, you, you know, simplify like the 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 model, how to do this. Um, so yeah, it'd be great just to hear your, you know, so I think it's a five step process, maybe three, <laughs> yeah, far yeah. away. So the process is that, uh, 
let, let's say that you know once the round is open you plan to be having at least five to ten meetings a week for about four to six weeks so let's say to get to those uh, 20 to 50 meetings you need to have those people on call on your whatsapp or via email readily because you've already have spoken to them before in order to have those people readily available on call that they see your email or your message and they see, remember who you are and they immediately say yeah let's have a meeting now because the rounds open you need to have approached them three to six months before and what you need to do is spend about three to six months just approaching 1000 to 2000 people and getting enough opt-ins from people to say, yes, please keep me in the loop for when the round opens. And uh, once you earn enough opt-ins, many of the people that you go back to when the round opens, they might not actually follow on their own promise. So let's say about 40 said, yeah, keep me in the loop. Let tell me, tell me when the round is open and keep sending any company info. Then only 20 might do it. Then you already know if it's going to be 20 people, 20 funds in each for say 200K, but that, then you, you can size your round instead of 4 million to a, a 3 million. So you can make sure that you end up oversubscribed. What you cannot do is de determine a size of a round before you know how much active interest you have on the table. Because otherwise you will be undersubscribed and odds are you may have to give back the money. Okay. Great, thank you. And Kirsty, like, does that you know, with, with crowdfunding, like, what's you know, uh, what's the, uh, the differences there? Well, I think it's important to understand that crowdfunding often includes high net worth, more sophisticated investors as part of that round. Um, those are typically the people who would lead the round. Um, and I always say to any anyone raising investment when you're looking for investment there are three if you're going to crowdfund there are three groups that you would consider and if not there are two groups that you you need to consider now if you've got a decent linkedin network for example that first group of people that you would always look to when you're beginning to raise investment and and as pratik said you should start this process way before you need the money um the first group you would always look to would be your direct contacts the people who are already within your reach if you've got several thousand LinkedIn connections and you're well connected generally, um, those people may not be the ones who give you the money, but it's easy to, to let those people know first that this is on the horizon and, and seek introductions. Um, and crowdfunding enables you to give those people the opportunity to invest, even if they're not, if they haven't invested before. Um, the second group, once you've got some interest from that first group, would be your indirect contact. So that's anybody that those people can intro you to and anybody that you'll attract via your own outreach to new unknown investors. And then that third group of your crowdfund would be the crowdfunding platforms investors. Um, but, you know, I always say if you're thinking of raising investment and you don't have incredibly sensitive data to protect so if you if you might crowdfund one day or if you might make the investment round public one day try your best as you're growing to build in the open as you're connecting with people on linkedin and you're connecting with people generally you're building transparently you're talking actively about what's going on within your business on linkedin and then the successes that you're having 
it makes it very easy then to figure out who's tuned into what you're saying, who's commenting, who's liking those, those posts, who's getting back to you. And you can start to compile a list of people who are actually tuned in and kind of cheerleaders for your brand. And those would be the first people you might go to if you were looking to raise. And that just means that you're allowing people every step of the way to be part of your story rather than just building behind the scenes and then suddenly one day saying, right, well, we're open for investment. It's about building, as Pratik said, it's about building that momentum, building out that list so that when you open, you you can be oversubscribed quite quickly. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, so Jennifer, uh, is there anything from your side, you know, what, what, we, what you're seeing with female founders and is there uh, any... Um, yeah, like anything that you'd add to this at the moment? Um, I mean, the the question around what I'm seeing for for female founders is is a big one, and I can I can give you a bit of an update there. Um, I'm definitely seeing well, there's there's a movement around wanting to invest in more female founders, um, and I specifically focus on the UK. Uh, there are investors such as Astia. I'm a huge fan of theirs and they'd always be the first company, the first VC that I'd recommend for a female founder. Um, that They focus purely on female founders and have done a lot to remove the bias uh, from their processes um, and um, underrepresented founders as well. They've been doing a lot around, um, again, removing the bias uh, to invest fairly in, in companies based on their merit rather than um, the, the face on the box. And there are a number of other VCs, Playfair Capital, they hold female founder office hours. Uh, that's seen over 125 investors and 700 founders coming together. To your point, Pratik um, and, and Kirsty, those office hours are providing access for founders that don't necessarily have the networks, um, especially with female founders and under, underrepresented founders. Those friends and family rounds are really hard to raise because they don't have wealthy friends and wealthy family. Um, so finding people who will um, back their business and back their idea is uh, at, at that stage can be really challenging. Um, so improving access, that's, what, that's one of the events, one of the key events, I think, in the UK. So that was female founded office hours by Playfair Capital. Um, the government um, has uh, an initiative called the Investing in Women Code. Uh, there are companies that have signed up to the code. Um, they're basically pledging their commitment to investing in female founders. That can be a helpful list to go and have a look at and see who is investing in women. Um, and I mean, this is my perspective, but backed by research, I feel like in this market, actually women, female founders are a really good bet. Um, and that is because women are, as founders, and this is, uh, this is research, they, we think differently, we're willing to challenge the status quo. Um, with that, women are thinking more about building a legacy business, a sustainable business, one that's going to be around for a long time. Um, they're less likely to incur environmental fines, for example. They're just a bit more kind of very more diligent, I guess, in their management. Um, and with that, um, the research shows that they return twice the revenue per dollar invested to male founders. So um, they're likely to be, yes, there's a better better ratio of, re of revenue there. Um, 
what else is there that and I guess I mean I see this with the women that I work with those trends around wanting to build a business that's sustainable and around for the long term um, and really being very diligent in their leadership um, whilst not lacking that ambition around for for growth as well there's more I could add, but no, no, that's great. Look, yeah, we can go, we can come into like a few more of the, the trends as well in, in a bit, but yeah, it's really interesting to hear. And it's data that, you know, well, look, I mean, it, it, it depends on the seat you sit in the window you look out of to, to what, what, um, you know, what, what, what data you see and what information you, you hear about. So it's, it's really great to sort of hear that from, from your your findings as as well so you know we all live in, a, in the echo chamber don't we so um yeah th- th- thank you uh, liam is there anything from your your side like you know haven't haven't done this quite a few times um there's a few bits in there that are like really super powerful i think that are bang on the money um that's been said there both by by all really um one of the major things that I found when I've raised in the past to kind of touch on on what what's been shared was surprised that some of the people in the in my network that did invest I never thought they would and become big advocates and big supporters. So a lesson I've learned is communicate constantly. So that fundraising almost in and or building the business in the open is great advice and genuinely anyone that's listening kind of take that on board. Um, build a list early like i said communicate constantly and you, you'll be surprised the amount of like direct messages you'll get on things like linkedin of people praising you and wanting to support it and actually when it comes to this further down the line it's really really valuable so there's some really good nuggets in there for people to kind of pick up on that are, are very true awesome Thank, thanks liam um so yeah maybe um Kirsty, like you, you you know we, we caught up um you know a couple of days ago on this and you, you had some sort of advice on like the pitch deck so like you know if we move the conversation into actually you know creating the pitch deck getting advice back on it like what what's your what are some of your sort of nuggets from 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 that sort of uh space nuggets i think i think pitch decks are still important um you find that not not all investors will go through it in detail but most investors will want to see that you've put something together and that you're able to present your business consistently and coherently. In creating the pitch deck, it's not it's not something you just sort of do in isolation, is my advice. I would very much recommend that before you even start, you compile a list of kind of 10 or so trusted individuals from your network who you feel could add value and let them know that you're about to put this together and let them know that their feedback will be valuable to you once it's done and you can enter yourself into a bit of a feedback loop so you know you send out the first iteration and get and get some feedback and and deck can develop from there um and you might then also find that because you've asked for advice and you've not asked for money some of those people might end up becoming investors which is what tends to happen if you if you ask for money you, you'll get nothing but advice usually but if the other way around it can be a bit different <laughs> so that, that's a, often a very clever move and, and if you choose carefully those people can often know people that then when they feel the pitch deck's looking good enough might might want to put some money in um and 
I guess on the back of that, you can, if you do that, you can become quite overwhelmed sometimes by the noise and and then the different opinions that people have. Um, so it's really being focused and figuring out what advice, having a bit of a filter, you know, what advice and feedback on my deck do I listen to and where do I iterate and what am I absolutely set on that is, is not going to change making sure you're quite clear on your course and you don't get thrown off course. So I've seen some of the best businesses be really thrown off course by one piece of advice. They suddenly want to change up a huge part of their business and, and it's caused them a lot of damage in the long term because it's, ta- it's taken a lot of time to then come back from that. So it's before you send that deck out, being very clear for you on, on what the non-negotiables are and the bits that you do want the help with. I think my third and final piece of advice is prepare for questions because you'll get asked questions by investors. So you need to have put that deck and those financials together yourself, or at least been very heavily involved. So you can answer the questions very quickly. Um, If you want to figure out what questions investors might ask, the best place to look is join a crowdfunding platform, go on Cedars and Crowdcube, look at some pictures, go to the discussion section and you'll see on every single pitch, investors are asking questions. Just compile a list of any questions you see and make sure you've prepared your own responses before you start sending that deck out to investors. Brilliant, thanks Kirsty. Um, Pratik, like from your side, obviously, uh, I don't know like how much you overlap with this, but where where does the pitch deck come in with like your process and how how you work with uh, your clients? Oh, uh, it's actually a very powerful uh, part of the process because uh, obviously if you're talking to a complete stranger and not a warm contact, a warm contact, you just talk on the phone, explain the the business in two to five minutes and they're like, okay, I'm in or I'm out. But to get credibility of the stranger, you do need to send a pitch deck in the emails or at least have one ready when they ask. Now... Uh, what I've learned is if you put your pitch deck on Docsend and you observe very carefully which pages people are skipping and which ones they are reading in detail, simply removing the pages nobody reads and putting up the most read pages to the front dramatically shoots up the number of meetings you get. And what we discovered was the pitch deck that you use for an outreach is not the one that you use for, for, for the pitch. Well, actually, at the actual pitch, you don't, you don't even, even show the pitch deck. Rather, like you just have a conversation and at the end, you might just walk them through the second meeting. But in the outreach pitch deck, if you only include the first slide, team, second slide, traction, third slide, fundraising ask, fourth slide, roadmap after the fundraising, four slide deck or other five including the cover slide. That's all people ever wanted to see. Everything else was noise. And the moment we did this, we had a, a FinTech round that was like getting crickets for a month. We removed the slide that nobody read. And then the next day, four meetings. So <laughs> apparently it's really, People say they want to see the pitch deck with the usual boilerplate structure that nobody cares about, problem, solution, competitive landscape, USP. Nobody cares. Man, the, the problem slide is noise. The solution slide is noise. Uh, 
yeah, we know there's a problem. That's why you're building a business. Yeah, okay, so you got competitors and on the two by two axis, you're on the top right. No, just tell us one thing. Are you making money? Do you have a solid team? And will you make some money well? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, that's like, oh, yeah, really interesting advice. Thanks for that, Pratik. You've probably helped a lot of people, um, you know, s save a lot of time trying to create the t 10, 12 page pitch deck. So, um, like on team, um, it'd be interesting to explore that a bit. So, you know, having sort of, you know, run a design and tech school, we were looking at the hipster hacker hustler type model in, in the training that we, you know, we were doing. So, yeah, what what's the importance of that? Because you've got like pedigree um, of the co-founders, you know, there's this, you, you read up on if the co-founders, one or two of them have had a little bit of success, but not loads. So they're still hungry, but they understand what they wouldn't do in their next business. There's these types of things that are, that the um, investors are looking for. Is there any sort of like thoughts thoughts on this on, uh, on, on inexperience of, of, of pitch decks and like to some extent pulling together a team open to the floor but happy to, to direct um i mean very generally i really love uh noam wasserman founders dilemmas he talks about three types of capital and i think that's always a, a great way to look at the founding team so that is financial capital obviously so resources that the team are generally bringing to the business um uh social capital so networks um and um human capital which is capability um and it's a model that i've always found very helpful for thinking about team and and when i've been doing um founder due diligence for the um angel group that i'm part of that's uh, often what i've been looking at as well that's awesome any any other thoughts or also seeing like comments about hey PhDs you're more important than the MBA so don't forget that you know in in the um, in the way like the team is structured or positioned um, yeah I think it's think think the concept of teaching the management skills are easier than teaching the specialism so it's easier to teach the generalist and the specialist skills but um, yeah Kirsty I think um, especially if you're an earlier stage company. Um, that team slide is, is obviously important for investors to see, but what's also really important is for, for, for them to be able to see that you know where the gaps in your team are at the point that you're at um, and making sure that in the plan for how you're going to spend the investment, one of your objectives is to plug those gaps very quickly so you know exactly the key next people that you'll need to bring in. And making it very clear that that's your plan that can often instill a lot of investor confidence when the team is a bit sparse at the stage that you're at yeah and okay. having individuals earmarks at that point too like yeah. actually having having already started headhunting and kind of knowing who you're going after or having had warm conversations with them great and um is, are there sort of views on how much you know founders should be paying themselves um and after that want to talk about valuation so i don't know that are there is there an, an acceptable rate you know generally or is it a range i think always something you, you should always pay yourself something is my advice investors want to see that you're 
you're being paid for for what you're doing you're motivated um so I don't like it when I see that you know the top people in the business are paying themselves nothing um because you know what is it that's keeping you you going and often that means that you then have to have a side hustle to be able to pay the bills which takes your focus away from the business so investors like to see that you are paying yourself something but never more than the, the business can afford um and it's different for every company, I think. Okay, great. And and, and in terms of valuation, um, you know, there's loads of different like models. I uh, don't know, Liam, have you, because you've got multiples on revenue versus EBITDA, have you got sort of thoughts on? on... <laughs> the easiest one is effectively look around your market, see who's fundraised in a similar space, similar type of business model, what they've raised that and if they were successful. If they've raised it that, there's a benchmark. Yeah. And if they haven't, let's be honest, that's how you value properties in your area. If something that's a three bedroom in the same area that's detached is sold for X, it's, you, you, you value it in a similar way. Trying to value a startup is a little bit like, just put your finger in the air and have a bit of a guess because no one, no one knows and I'll be honest, I've tried a number of different websites and the metrics and all that sort of stuff. And you end up, one comes out with you're worth nothing. The other one comes out, you're worth 100, like you're worth almost a unicorn already, which is nonsense. Um, so it's kind of just understand what the market is. And there's a market there for it already that someone's already raised at that sort of valuation. So you use that as your benchmark is how I've always done it, to be totally honest. <clears throat> and I think, um, you know, with valuation, it's thinking about the subsequent rounds of funding you might have to do. Um, if you value yourself way too high for that first round and then you don't make the progress that you'd set out to make, it's very, very difficult to come back. Um, we don't, you definitely don't want to be doing is a, is a down round if you can avoid it. So it's thinking about what's a fair valuation for the stage that I'm at right now um, and not being too greedy in those first rounds of funding because you need to, Make sure that you're comfortable, of course, with the valuation you're going at, but also that it's reasonable for the investor given the stage you're at, no matter how ambitious your business looks, no matter how you might look in the future. The earlier you are, the higher the risk. Um, so making sure that you're pricing yourself in a way that's fair for everybody. I think you'll have a bit of a range when you're going out, when you when you start pitching. And um, one thing I'll say it's it's very easy to kind of come down on valuation, um, but it's difficult to kind of go back up. So if you've got your range, when you're pitching, always start at the top of that range and see what the reaction is just to the first few people that you send to. And if people bite, then that's that's your price. And if not, then you'll bring that down. Great, okay. So more, more generous in the early, early rounds. Um, yeah, Jennifer. Yeah, I was just going to build on what Kirsty was saying. Um, when when taking investment, uh, this is this is my perspective again. You know, you're, you're the number one thing that you're going in for is money. People think they're also coming in for a number of other benefits. I'd say the number two thing that you're coming in for is more money. Um, and and if somebody who's invested in your business once is more likely to provide you with follow-on funding. Um, so just adding to the to the down round. Um, that's, yeah, you, that's a really 
challenging position to be in because you want to be able to get follow-on funding from your current investors, but also your current investors are more likely to open the door to your next round of investors as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And given you know the, the current market state, if if you're not asking your current investors, you know, for for something now, someone else in their portfolio w- will be. So, um, yeah, it's uh, and ob- but obviously there are other things. You know, we'll, we'll get onto that. Other things companies could be doing right now. Um, yeah, Liam, I know you, you're a fan of like you know trying to inject. Well, the the whole the whole fear of missing out. Like, how do you build that? <laughs> Um, well, the best way of, of creating a fear of missing out is, well, effectively building enough interested investors so they can kind of compete against each other is the, is the most simplified version of it. Um, you have certain, certain ways you can do it, certainly earlier on. Um, if you're using like an SEIS model, you're capped at 150. So that is a very good way of effectively, it's out of your control. If you have people that are interested, it's a very attractive investment opportunity and an attractive tax benefit to people that do it. So you are you have, you have got a limited number at 150. So that's a really good tool to use, um, uh, which we found has been really successful for us in the past. We've tended to you, you you can oversubscribe quite quickly on that 150. So you've got to be quite cute how you do it and be honourable with it. So um, that's a good way. But like I say, just building up that that investment base and knowing where you are, that communication is key. And then effectively join a, if you, if you plan properly for your fundraise and you have it lined up, then you can use cutoff points and timelines of the fear of missing out to close quicker, as opposed to if you kind of open the round and then start your fundraise, you're always basically going to be on the back foot. So it's always harder to do that effectively. Yeah. Great. And, and there's the whole, you know, raising money when you don't need it point as well yeah very much so you're gonna have people like i said if you keep that communication open and uh, there's some people that do it really really well at the moment and the the metrics are out there like they're on linkedin and stuff like that so um you've got the heights that are doing it quite a lot they've, they've gone for a crowdfunding campaign right now um but they're literally giving like weekly and monthly the stats on what their sales are to, to the general public, to anyone that's connected with them on LinkedIn or follows them. So you can see that they're going to naturally generate individuals or, or VCs or PE funds or whatever it might be that are actually looking for that type of business are going to be approaching them over time. Whereas the point that was made earlier in the call about kind of doing everything in stealth and then going, hi, we're here, we're ready to raise money, just doesn't really work anymore. Use social media to your advantage. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Liam. Um, Pratik, I was going to like move the conversation on unless anyone wants to jump in with anything. Mm-hmm. So there was um, something that Kirsty was talking about conflicting feedback earlier, if I can take us back to that. Um, yeah, of course. That was uh, feedback, getting feedback on your pitch. Um, I, I, this, this was actually how I got into coaching is that I was having frequently having conversations with female founders about I'm getting so much feedback and it's conflicting and I don't know my own mind anymore. Um, and I often see this when I'm, again, I'm working with, I work predominantly with female founders, but when they're going through this process of pitching um, and often where we land is going into those situations when you're asking for feedback, being really specific about the feedback that you want 
and being aware that you're you're going to get unsolicited feedback. And for women, sometimes it can be like try and speak in a lower voice or don't wear pink. Um, and and coming in with a frame of mind of you know I know exactly what I'm here for I know what feedback I'm looking for um, and basically being able to just ignore the unsolicited feedback um, can can really help with I guess just not getting distracted by it essentially Um, what was the other thing yeah the other thing that I see again uh happening for women and this is well researched is that you'll often be asked about how you're going to manage risk um whereas men are often asked about what is the opportunity with your business what what more could you do how much bigger could you be um and again by for women by I cursed you had a point of being prepared for the questions you're going to be asked you know, for women being prepared that you are going to get asked those questions. If you can answer the risk questions um, in a manner that is talking about the opportunity with your business, actually you're going to build trust in, in your business model a lot quicker. So those questions are in some way unhelpful, but also actually really helpful because it gives you the opportunity to build that trust faster. Mm-hmm. To, to jump in on that as well, Jennifer, yeah. I actually was given a bit of advice myself by a female investor that actually turned around and said to use the FAQ part of your pitch or your deck, whatever it might be, as almost a prime part now. Because what it allows you to do, and this is, I thought it was great advice, is actually you spend so long building a pitch that's very text, very industry-specific jargon, keywords, or whatever the rest of it. You can actually really simplify your business model in your FAQs like your simple line of how will you make money? One paragraph. What do you do that's different? And it allows you to almost really simplify what your business does and almost ask the questions that maybe some people don't want to ask. They don't want to look stupid or they'll, they'll almost write you off because they're not going to ask a question. But to actually build a really good FAQ part that simplifies is the whole business and stops a lot of those questions later, which I thought was great advice. Yeah. Yeah, that is great, especially for dealing with some of the questions, like you say, that um, that people are, are not feeling comfortable to to ask. Mm. Brilliant, Th- thank you. That's um, yeah, like r- really interesting, and it's yeah, there's a whole there's a whole mindset around unsolicited advice and whether you <laughs> didn't ask for it, right? So, um, but it can yeah. really throw you. Yeah. 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 Um, By the way, something that was really interesting is like how traditional advice to founders is advice that only makes sense if you're talking to very privileged people who went to Eton or something. <laughs> like you should use your network. I'm sorry. Does somebody in, in Nottingham or, or Blackpool have a, a network, you know, all these towns? I mean, it, it, does somebody who, who grew up, in, I mean, this honestly, not, not even as, saying it as a joke, who grew up in a coal mining town but learned coding in their free time, do they have a network? What are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to use their limited personal savings, go to London, pause from their project and spend a year networking so they have a network? I mean, it makes no sense, really. So especially like it's telling uh, underrepresented female founders, you should use your network. How does a woman coder in Cameroon get funded then? What network does she have? Surely the fundraising should not be about con- connections entirely, but like how solid the founder is. 
And that's where VCs like Astia come in. I mean, they're later stage, they're not family and friends, but there is definitely um, an awareness around, around that. And there's a lot of conversation around that amongst the communities of female founders and underrepresented founders. And um, I mean, with Astia, anyone can apply. You don't have to be introduced. And a lot of the, the VCs um, that I've been re researching that, that do focus on supporting female and underrepresented founders have a very open um, door policy that anybody can reach out and that they will respond. And that's what those female founder office hours are for as well. So I think there is definitely um, an appreciation in the industry or growing appreciation in the industry that you know, not everybody has fam family and friends that they can call on and there are more and more opportunities to, um, to get access to networks, yeah. Great. Um, yeah, look, I'd love to talk more. And I just, you know, we're, we're going to run out of time. I'd really like, so looking at trends, uh, Pratik, just, you know, you've got some really interesting, you've got like a more, bit more of a global uh, picture of what's going on from the work you're doing. Like, let's, let's, let's know what, what you're seeing happening. You know, um, this is ultimately against the backdrop of the current climate. So far away. Well, for example, right now, the most successful <laughs> investor outreach campaign I'm working on is for a company in El Salvador, you know, and uh, that's a company which uh, which offers a gamified app to do consumer lending. And what I'm just thinking is like, uh, why is it that Latin American investors are not bothered by a global stagflation? That's because they've always lived in stagflation. It's nothing new. It's normal life for the last 30 years, I guess, you know? <laughs> so it, it, right now, people in the countries where crises are so common, they are ramping it up. Uh, I'm also noticing that in a, investors in Turkey, they are very approachable and they are very eager to take meetings, not, not only with Turkish companies, but people all over the world. And uh, the, when, when you've lived in a country that's constantly under crisis, you just realize, there's never a perfect time to do anything. So just do it now. And uh, something else I've noticed is uh, normally my approach was to prioritize reaching out to investors who've been investing in the last three months, six months, or one year. But the moment I just thought, why don't I approach people who have not invested in that time and have been on a pause? Then recently, that approach caused the number of investor meetings to shoot up because a lot of people were not investing in 2021, because when the pre-seed valuation is 30 million, that prices out a lot of people. Now, let me explain this. If you see a lot of acquisitions happening in the market, it's usually for 10 to 20 million for a company that was funded one to two million. Uh-huh. So what seems to be happening is a company got sold for basically what was the exact price or less than what their seed round took place in. So people want a margin of safety and an investment that in case this investment does not go through, they will at least recuperate some of the money. So a 30 million pre-seed valuation means it's probably gonna be sold at 10 to 20 in cases there's a distress sale and things don't work out. So they, they've already lost money. Uh, and uh, 
people were, who are not investing, now they're investing again because they have decided that they want to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others were greedy. The valuations were too high in 2021 and many investors stayed out of the market. Some people said, I will never angel invest again if a 30 to 40 million pre-seed valuation is the norm. Well, now it's coming back to saner levels, like 20 million or less. So I believe you should prioritize people who have been holding back. Awesome. Okay, thank you. And then in sectors, you know, what 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 are some of the interesting shifts you've seen? Okay, so uh, used to be that I've been actually approached by so many founders who wanted to build an on-demand grocery delivery app for their local market, uh, Egypt, Indonesia, and Canada, you name it. Uh, or, or Portugal. And what they would tell me is, uh, hey, we just closed our 2 million round and we are now raising the next 3 million round. I'm like, didn't you just raise and close yesterday? So uh, that used to shock me that those people always had no problems getting money. And because get money for an on-demand grocery delivery app was never a problem, they didn't really need like a, a, any kind of sophisticated research work. They just wanted anyone available to do to spread their reach on no cure, no pay. Because they, they'd have army of no cure, no pay broker dealers just chasing another grocery delivery app. Now, I just ask how they're doing and they're all telling me, we got to lay off half our staff, you know? Like, so we never got to start doing business, but we just maintained the relationship. That's one thing. Really, anything, anything related to food delivery or grocery delivery, it just suddenly disappeared. And anything supply chain dependent was doing well before and not anymore. Now, something else in the market that uh, I'm noticing is uh, if you were building a uh, anything like crypto trading platform, crypto exchange, that was getting an impressive valuation in 2021. But uh, now, ever since... Coinbase's um, stock price crashed to nothing. Nobody wants to touch that. Um, I, ha I was working with a health and fitness founder uh, who wanted to help people and big companies do group workout sessions via a smartphone or something like that. So uh, when the Peloton stock price crashed, we reached out to a family office. The family office guy said, look, this CNBC video describes how I feel about the Peloton. It was some Jim Cramer style guy doing screaming about how bad the stock Peloton was. So people don't really believe much in uh, in, in anything that's too like um, tech solution to fitness because fit people use less technology. They just go outside. They don't stay indoors with their phone and their screens. Uh, so what's working well is anything that's, that was defensible, you know? Anything that's kind of like in the domain that Stripe is in uh, and so on, just empowering payments or uh, and wallets and stuff like that stuff, that's going to be like an infrastructure will survive for about 10 years. That was doing well before. It's still doing well now. So I guess if I was an investor, think about if this, like, is this going to make sense 10 years from now? Will it still be as exciting? Nobody thought about that when it came to on-demand grocery delivery because really, no, I, my grocery store is five minutes away. Why do I need a 10-minute grocery delivery app? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I guess uh, trying to, yeah, look at what Amazon are trying to 
nudge towards. Um, hey, look, like we're, we're just uh, we're on the hour. Um, I really appreciate that particular. Really interesting to hear from your perspective, um, Jennifer. What are a few of the other things? You know, the concept of like going for monetization over growth. You know, what what like you know in 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 a you know su summary like less than a minute really. What 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 other things can businesses and leaders be doing? Oh yeah, I know what you're referring to. I was I was talking to you earlier about a great article that I I read that was from a founder saying um, I'm getting so many emails from VCs telling me raise more money, raise more money, um, quickly before the market um, disappears. Uh, and it seems somewhat self-serving. Um, what I would really like is for them to be providing advice on um, how I reduce my customer acquisition costs, how I um, can improve my cash flow by reducing my outgoings um, and how I can review my pricing essentially to, to adjust to the current market. Um, so, I mean, I'm a big advocate for, you know, first building a business that can be self-sustaining and raising capital for growth rather than um, building a business based on, you know, you know your next goal is, is to raise more money. Um, so that article made me smile. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Well, look, um, so we're right, like right up against it. So in less than 20 words, I'm going to go around the room. Uh, Kirsty, I'll start with you. What advice would you give to founders like regarding their, like keeping their, their mindset and like just keeping them, you know, I don't know, like believing in themselves uh, if they're trying to fundraise right now? Uh, like go on a low information diet. Like remove <laughs> noise and focus. Awesome. Not CNN constantly negative news. <laughs> yeah, get off Facebook. Get off. Get out of your your bubble. Um, you'll hear the important things from people around you. You don't need to watch the news. <laughs> awesome. Great stuff. Thanks. Uh, going around, Jennifer. Yeah, absolutely love that. Knowing your own mind, I think, is the mo most powerful thing that you can do. And that's often the feedback that w I see for founders from their team. You know, just, you know, we just want to know what, what it is that you want us to focus on and, and what's important for you. Um, and, and again, that knowing your own mind can really help when you're going out raising investments um, and knowing kind of what you're going for, what you're looking for in terms of feedback. Um, yeah. Awesome. I like Great. that. Thank you. Thanks, Kirsty. Uh, Liam? Um, <clears throat> um, you're clearly a risk taker anyway as an entrepreneur. So actually, what everything that's going on is effectively creating more, more of an opportunity. So just seize the opportunity as opposed to fear it and um, ignore the friends and family in PAYE jobs saying you're mad and just keep, <laughs> keep gunning for it and know that you're going to get there. <laughs> Good businesses awesome. will always thrive, no matter the market. Great, thanks, Liam. And Pratik, finally on you. Okay, the biggest advice I would give to any fundraising founder is talk to all your customers, put on a single page all information on how big a priority your product is to them, how often they'd use it, and how mad they would be if, if you shut off the service to them, you know? And it, collect this info via quotes or via videos, compile it together, and then figure out a story. That's your pitch. Amazing. It's no matter if you have a pitch deck or you don't have a pitch deck, but that's the story of your business. And that's how you start with your investor meetings or what you talk about on social media, everything. That's all people want to know. 
They can't live without your product. They use it multiple times a day. They're paid to keep keep ha- having access to it. <laughs> awesome, great. Well, look, thank you so much. Um, yeah, some 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 great advice it was from a friend, but I don't know where where they heard it. It's like when everything is is rosy, it's time to be cautious, and when everyone is screaming, it's the end of the world. Plant a tree. Uh, <laughs> so, hope you feel a bit wiser this Wednesday. Um, really appreciate the panelists, um, and obviously you for listening um you know next time we're going to be discussing hybrid working if you've got any questions i'm sure uh, and everyone here won't mind you reaching out directly uh via direct message or you're welcome to email support at amplify.me um yeah look thank you so much for today and um you know good luck thank you james cool bye cheers james bye all